When someone mentions the 2002 Austrian Grand Prix, one image comes to mind immediately. But was it a dark day for Formula One or a lot of fuss about nothing? We'll try to get those answers on this latest episode of Bring Back V10s. Before we get going, remember to send us your questions for our series finale using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter, or leave us a five-star review on your favourite podcast platform and throw a question in there too. Weirdly, we've, we've had so many questions, but weirdly we're getting a lot of hypothetical questions this time. So what if this person had gone here, or what if this had, this had happened? And that's going to be a lot of fun to answer, even if uh, we, might not be have, well, we might not be able to offer much substance. But uh, keep the questions coming, we're really enjoying how many we've got. Already joining me today, though, to talk Austria 2002, two people making their first appearance of the series, Mark Hughes and Matt Beer. So, guys, welcome back. And Mark, we'll start by throwing the opening question to you, which is quite simply: When you think back to Austria 2002, what's the first thing that comes to mind? And I imagine it's quite obvious. Yeah, it's the non-race. It's the the the, the Ferrari non-race where uh, the two Ferrari drivers were um, arguing about who was going to win the race. Yeah, like I say, dark days for F1, I think, in neutral fans' eyes. What about you, Matt? Is there anything else you can pick out of this race? Uh, no, but it's uh, for me, it's the way I, I, I learned about this event because I was uh, at Pembroke that day covering a Bark meeting for Motorsport News and Autosport. I was at the, very much the other end of my career. And um, I found out about this uh, Ferrari swap by a very sullen Welsh man coming into the commentary box where I was uh, watching from one of the officials of the meeting and just looking at me and the commentator and saying, Schumacher won the Grand Prix, but Barrichello led Tool. And they just did a kind of mimed gesture of a finish line and two Ferraris swapping places. And then just that, that was his whole contribution. Walked away looking crestfallen, probably summing up the views of most Formula One fans that day. Yeah, well, that's what we're, that's what we're going to get into as we go through uh, discussing this race. Now, we always like to start these episodes off by looking at what else was in the news around the time. But in the early summer of 2002, there's barely anything else going on which is perhaps indicative of what a straightforward season we were already having by that point. Michael Schumacher had won four of the first five races. He'd finished third behind a Williams 1-2 in Malaysia, a race won by his brother Ralph. But Michael already leads the championship with 44 points, ahead of Juan Pablo Montoya on 23 and Ralph on 20 as we get to Austria. The Ferrari F2002 is utterly dominant and the previous race at Barcelona, the next closest car was nine tenths of a second adrift in qualifying, and in the race, the fastest lap by a non-Ferrari was 1.3 seconds slower than Schumacher. Almost sounds familiar if we're looking at 2020. One of the few talking points going into Austria, though, is that F1 has become too boring. Schumacher's won back-to-back titles by this point with Ferrari, prevailing in a close fight against Mika Hakkinen in 2000, and in a not-so-close fight in 2001 as McLaren's challenge weakened. And already by Austria, it looks like 2002 is going to be even easier. Max Mosley and Bernie Ecclestone, F1's famous dastardly duo, try to defend F1 at this point. Max says, All sport is boring from time to time. That's the difference between sport and a circus or the theatre. The season is still very young, and it would be wrong to assume that the rest of the year will necessarily develop the same way. And Bernie adds, People like to see a superstar and then see who is going to beat him. The conversation is all about who is going to beat Michael, and that's the interest. Can someone beat him? There is always someone out there ready to beat the star. Mark, you've covered various eras now of dominance in F1. Is it possible to argue that F1 wasn't boring in 2002? 
Mm, not from a general fan perspective. No, it was um, the dominance was huge and um, it's entirely predictable. I mean, there was a little bit of intrigue sometimes about how they were going to get to that result because sometimes um, the Michelin tyres, which um, Williams and McLaren were on, had a, a an advantage over the Bridgestones on the Ferrari, but never enough to overcome the inherent uh, car advantage of the Ferrari. Um, so, yeah, sometimes a little bit of intrigue in how to get there, but not the outcome. So you'd, it was going into the weekend, a little bit like now, pretty know, pretty much knowing what the outcome was going to be. Just, you know, the the interest was only going to be from the hardcore, for the hardcore people about the route to that outcome. Yeah, and in an effort to clutch at straws ahead of Austria, the hope is that Williams can pose a threat because uh, the team were good there in 2001. And the hope is that the BMW engines can stretch their legs on the A1 rings straight. Uh, Ralph and Montoya were, well, Montoya and Ralph were second and third on the grid the year before. And Montoya led the first 15 laps before memorably skating off the road in battle with Schumacher's Ferrari, which, Matt, I think was something you referenced uh, in our last series about races that people should go back and check out. Uh, Montoya draws on that 2001 pace and Williams's performance in Malaysia which also has some long straights, heavy braking and a similar surface to Sepang. Uh, as a reason for confidence, BMW's Gerhard Berger says the aim is to get close enough to put pressure on Ferrari. So even that suggests there's not huge confidence Williams can actually get ahead. And Michael Schumacher is dismissive of any suggestion in that Austria will reverse the trend of the season. He says, I don't know any reason why our good run should come to an end. The F2002 is such a fantastic car that we ought to have the best possible chance. And ominously for the weekend, it turns out, he adds, we are more aware than some others that the race for the World Championship is far from being decided yet and we're bound to suffer setbacks. Matt, was there any real reason to believe that Williams could be in the fight in Austria or is this just wishful thinking from people hoping that there was going to be some sort of storyline other than Ferrari dominance? Well, I think a lot of being a motorsport fan and journalist is a lot of hope and wishful thinking that something massively interesting is going to happen when all evidence in front of you suggests it might not. I, personally speaking, as a, a kind of F1 fan at that point, I never gave up hope that um, the monster-sized BMW engine and Montoya's spirit and creativity would somehow somehow find a way every single weekend. If, but if you look at it, Logically as well, though, Montoya went on to take five pole positions in a row after this race. And, you know, that car was quick in a certain way that wasn't necessarily a race-winning way. Um, and the fact a lot of it was done on a power advantage did give him the, the chance to try some very spirited drives. And like like you say, in Austria the year before, holding off Schumacher for a little while against all the odds, then just getting too leery with how he was trying to do it. So, I, yeah, I you always thought something might happen. It would be related to Montoya and related to the BMW horsepower somehow. You never really thought it was going to end up in him defeating Schumacher, but it wasn't a completely forlorn hope. And there isn't really much else to talk about uh, in the build-up to the race. Those of you that listened to our Paul Ricard 1990 episode last week will probably remember that it took us about 45 minutes to get to the race weekend because there was so much going on. But we're already in the race weekend now. Let's get to the action in qualifying, Barrichello takes pole and uh, Ralph gets onto the front row with using soft Michelins on the Williams. So that splits the Ferraris. Montoya is fourth, hoping to make better use of his harder tyres in the race. Interestingly, Ferrari fuel their cars light, going for what is effectively a less optimum two-stop strategy in a bid to get Michael ahead of Ralph off the line and then scamper into the distance, basically uninterfered with, so the BMW engine can't keep Williams 
in the hunt. And that works. So after just 20 laps, Ralph is 31 seconds behind the Ferraris. Uh, it's game over. Montoya said after the race that Ferrari has raised their game with the engine. So that's why BMW's advantage uh, wasn't as big anymore. For those of you playing, that will get its own episode. Bingo, you can have a point here. As in the future, we will look in great depth at the breakdown of the Williams-BMW relationship. We'll take a quick detour onto that subject here. In an excellent book that we've cited before, it's all about Williams and the team's history by Morris Hamilton. Uh, Patrick Head says Williams should have won the championship in 2001 and 2002. He says that reliability let them down, but he added, in truth, the car wasn't good enough. Montoya is also quoted in that book, and he's not massively complimentary of BMW. He says, BMW always seemed to think they were superior and had better engines. They did a really good job, but they were overconfident about what they were doing, and they gave the impression that what they were doing was more important than what Williams were doing. Now, Mark, earlier this year on the race website, you wrote a whole piece, actually, about the, the breakdown of, of Williams and BMW. And in that, you said 2002 was supposed to be the year of a title challenge, the third year of the partnership. Was this absolute beating they took from Ferrari in 2002 actually the beginning of the end with BMW and Williams? Yes, it was. BMW quite naively expected to um, just follow a logical progression. We saw, the, we saw that line of thinking again later on in when they had their own team in, in 2008 because there were um, 2008 was when they scheduled to win their first race and they did win their first race um, the, the the obvious conclusion is that 2009 would win the, the title and I think they ended up scoring about eight points or something like that in 2009 um, so yeah it was that that um, straight line thinking was very much in evidence then as well um, in fairness, they had done a fantastic engine, and it was still, although its advantage wasn't as big in 2002 as it had been the year before in terms of raw horsepower, it was still the best engine. It was still the most powerful engine. Um, but thinking that just because they'd signed with Williams, and Williams was the team that, um, when they'd last had a, a works factory engine, were dominant, it would, they would therefore be, be dominant again. Um, but it, that's to ignore what everybody else was up to, of course, and then Ferrari had made enormous strides in that time, and so they just weren't, as an all-round combination, which is all you can measure it, because that's all the, the timing beam's interested in, as an all-round combination, there was nowhere near Ferrari. Um, so, yeah, there were... Um, Williams was uh, revealed to have fallen behind at times um, in, in that sort of five-year interval that there'd been since they were last winning world titles. Well, let's look at Ferrari's other great rival that was also dropping the ball at this stage, which is McLaren, who are having a, a terrible season by their recent standards. They're a distant third in the Constructors' Championship, and David Coulthard's sixth place in this race is only the team's 14th point of the season, leaving it 36 behind Williams. And Coulthard says of the car, there's no particular problem with it, it just doesn't have enough performance. Kimi Raikkonen's engine blows up after just five laps, which was also a common theme for Mercedes during this era. Now, we mentioned in our MP418 episode in Series 1 that Adrian Newey put the disappointing 2002 car, which, of course, this is in its original form, not the D-spec form that almost won Raikkonen in the 2003 championship. Newey put that down to McLaren's matrix management structure, as this was the first car produced since Ron Dennis ordered the restructuring after he felt Newey had held him to ransom by trying to leave in 2001. We've talked about that in the past, so but this time we'll look at the Mercedes element. 
One year before this, Coulthard won the Austrian Grand Prix, and you may have seen images of him not spraying the champagne on the podium, and that was out of respect for the death of Paul Morgan, one of the co-founders of Ilmore. And Newey believes that the loss of Morgan put too much weight on the shoulders of Ilmore's technical guru, Mario Ilian, which affected the quality of the Mercedes engines uh, around this time. Newey said in his book, not only was it a tragic accident that robbed us of a great person and engineer, but it also left Ilmore compromised. Paul had been the company's managing director and, and his death left Mario, the technical director, responsible for running the shop floor and overseeing managerial and procedural matters, all of which left him completely overstretched. The engines suffered as a result with our performance slipping below Ferraris and BMWs. Worse still, reliability became even more of an issue. And Mark, McLaren's cars weren't perfect during this era, but how much, how much of a role do you think the Mercedes engine problems caused in their downturn at the start of the 21st century? The poor performance of the um, Ilmos in that season was um, a symptom of a, a breakdown, really, in the, in the relationship, because I think Adrian... <laughs> There was there was two things going on. There was um, internal friction at McLaren between Adrian and and Ron, and there was um, a little bit of a breakdown between Adrian and uh, Ilmore because you know the the his touch point had, had gone, and as as he said in the book, um, Mario was was left carrying the baby. What it meant was that Adrian was putting. Um, very heavy demands on upon Ilmore in terms of a very aggressive um, packaging, and he wanted a very very low crankshaft and quite big engineering challenges. And all these were um, Ilmore was trying to meet them at the same time as trying to reorganise. Um, Beryllium had just recently been banned. That was another thing that uh, Ilmore had relied heavily on. They they were the masters of of using that material. So there's a lot going on at the same time at Ilmore that, that, that prevented them from showing their best. And that compromised in turn the car because obviously it didn't have the horsepower it was designed around, so its drag levels were all wrong. Um, it just wasn't a, wasn't a great car in its original form. And so there, it was, it was a, a symptom of things that weren't um, going exactly the, the way they should have been in, in personal relationships behind the scenes. That's uh, that sounds very Ferrari twenty twenty as well. Not having the drag level wrong for the amount of power you've you've got. And in fairness to McLaren, uh, it finishes the year twenty seven points behind Williams after being thirty six behind at this point. So things do pick up, starting with a victory in Monaco next time out for Coulthard. The most dramatic moment of this race is a horrific-looking crash involving Nick Heidfeld and Takuma Sato. It comes shortly after a restart from a safety car period, and Heidfeld loses control under braking for what was then called Turn 2. We now know it as Turn 3, which he suspects was because of cold brakes. The Sauber spins backwards across the inside of the tight corner, narrowly missing Montoya's Williams and spearing into the side of Sato's Jordan. There are big concerns when Sato can't get out of the cockpit, but it turns out that's because he's stuck rather than injured. Now, uh, for what feels like about the 47th time in this series, we've got a storyline that's relevant to our own Gary Anderson. So we'll quickly hear a bit of insight for about the crash and then the damage to the car as well from uh, Gary. And, uh, and then we'll come back and talk about it. Heidfeld 
went off onto the right-hand side on the grass, heading up to the corner, um, and Sato just turned in and, and got T-boned. Um, it put a big hole inside of the chassis, right at his legs, um, and we obviously thought that you know it was it was worse than it was. From memory, I think the impact was something like forty g. It was it was a pretty high impact, and to punch a hole the size it did in the side of the chassis, right at the dash, right at his knees, was was obviously a, a big impact. You know there was bits and pieces of debris of suspension that punched into the car, so he just couldn't you know get out. It wasn't that um, he was damaged in the car, it was just that he was stuck in the car with bits and pieces sticking into it. Very, very lucky. I mean, a huge impact. 40 G is, is, is not fun. Um, so it, it was a huge impact and uh, you know, it's great testament to see that he's uh, you know around and racing still, 43 years old, I think it is, winning, winning Indy. From my point of view, you can't take those things and make them your full feature because at that point in time, I was pretty adamant the safety car was going to come out and I was busy with Fizzy getting him into the pits for his pit stop. You know, we were running, I think we were running, Fizzy was running something like 14th or 12th or something like that, came in and pitted, and he ended up fifth from memory. And and he, and he drove a competitive fifth, I think, at David Coulthard behind him in McLaren. So, you know, just that switch from running in the mid-pack mid, mid pack of 14 to, to running in fifth, he just upped his game, and it was, it was really incredible to see that. But as I say, you know, during that crash, my focus was fully on the guy getting the best result out of the other guy that was there. Taka was a bit upset because we got him in early, and as he said, if we if we hadn't pitted him early, you know he wouldn't have been in that position. He wouldn't have got t boned and all that sort of stuff. But you know, it's, it's hindsight again, isn't it? It's just what happens is happens. You just you do the right things at the right time. But it was a very big impact, and uh, the motor, the MotoGP episode um, showed that you know it's, it still can happen. It's just one of those sort of situations. Now, it may seem like we have a Gary Anderson clip in every episode, but I think for a while now, until we need Gary for another Jordan episode we've got later in the series, I think that'll be the last we hear from him. Montoya was a lucky boy here. If you watch the crash back, uh, it's you know it's very close. And he said Heidfeld's car flashed past him so quickly he couldn't tell which way it was facing. Sato says afterwards that he was briefly scared for his legs because he could see a hole in the monocoque but he quite quickly realised all parts of his body had feeling and were intact. And on the Monday after the race, he declares he'll be fit for Monaco. Matt, I'm sure you've watched this one back since, so I'm not calling on an 18-year-old memory here, but what did you make of that accident? Obviously, ter a terrifying one. One of those as well that makes you think um, accidents that look like the car's broken often actually aren't. It's just what vehicle dynamics does in a, in a certain set of circumstances like very cold brakes um i think that was after a restart potentially wasn't it yeah just such such a bizarre high speed snap became topical again this year with a, a moto gp accident that had uh, quite a few similarities and uh, led to a lot of criticism of that corner as well and actually i can't remember if anyone was up in arms about the corner at the time but it is quite an unusual layout and trajectory where you've got a long flat out run kind of aiming the cars at the, the cars moving slower on the exit in a way that I can't think of many other examples of in circuit design that are quite like that for for having this sort of potential. Um, but yeah, a completely, completely freak, terrifying one. Another one of those cliches of showing the strength of the modern F1 car. I think my main feeling at the time was just kind of dismay for Sato because he was someone I was really excited about coming into, into F1 after everything he'd done in Formula 3, had high hopes for a, a Japanese driver being brilliant. And um, his season was being was pretty appalling up to that point, and then got kind of violently worse in Austria. Um, 
uh, Mark wrote a feature recently on the race about Sato's time in F1 following his uh, Indy 500 win, which is massively worth a read. It kind of goes into uh, why Sato's good days in F1 happened and why his bad days did as well and all the unfulfilled potential. But yeah, my my kind of thought trajectory there was, wow, crikey, glad he's not dead. That's a shame for Sato. Yeah, you mentioned being at a club race uh, that weekend. I was at a kart race, and I remember in the days before social media, you know, word was reaching the kart paddock we were in, you know, with all kinds of horror stories about Sato's condition. And I was, you know, so pleased to hear that that none of them were true. Now, as Gary mentioned in his little clip, there was better news for Jordan this day because Giancarlo Fisichella scored the team's first points of the season which left Honda rival BAR as the only team without any points so far in 2002. This was the second year of Jordan having works Honda engines as well as BAR, but Eddie Jordan knew the game would soon be up. It was BAR that brought Honda back into F1 in 2000, which we talked about a few weeks ago in our Honda 1999 episode. While Honda seemed happy to supply engines to Jordan while building a closer partnership with BAR, Eddie Jordan believes that BAR's owner, British American Tobacco, put Honda under a lot of pressure to remove the Jordan Thorn from BAR's side. There was a disagreement between Honda and Jordan over the structure of their contract in 2002, with Jordan claiming it was three years plus an option for another two, and Honda claiming it was two years with an option for another three. 2002 was the second year of the deal, and Jordan was desperate to hang on to Honda engines, but he couldn't make it happen. In the end, he got what he describes as a very generous settlement, where Honda paid $22 million to get out of the contract at the end of the year on the condition that that money had to be put towards future engine contracts. Jordan wrote in his book, They treated me impeccably. It was a huge figure and I should have been grateful. However, we wanted to win races and there was no doubt in my mind that the way forward should have been with Honda. Mark, the 2002 Jordan wasn't a great car, but they did finish above BAR in the championship that year. Did the team deserve a better shot with Honda to keep that relationship going? Maybe because I think at the time, Jordan was seen as just a sort of stopgap. He was going to be a customer. And then it it sort of got semi-work status. Um, And the the big Honda plan was to to take an increasing share in in BAR and make that a proper full works outfit. And I... feel that Honda felt they could control that and they felt that they wanted to be in full control of the full program whereas they were only ever going to be seen as a a partner at best um, with, with Eddie especially the the profile that EJ had at that time and they had been through a, a tough time they'd been starved of investment for the previous year and it was it seemed it was it, it seemed unfeasible that it was only back in 99 that Frensen was mounting that um, title challenge because they'd, they'd fallen an awful long way in, in that time. Um, they were still, as they still are even to an extent in, in, in the Racing Point guys, a small team that subcontracted everything. And I think Honda, as a very engineering-led company, really couldn't see that that was the way forward they they wanted to have the big investment and the big resource and they thought that they should have control over that and they didn't see EJ's team um fitting into that they just they, they didn't just didn't have that belief I don't think 
and I can you said there was a, it seemed to be a misunderstanding over the contract given the given the um the two cultures involved I could quite easily believe that as well <laughs> you know uh, so yeah a bit of a culture clash all around I think and it, it, I don't yeah they, they I'm sure they could have achieved success whether it would have been the ultimate success that would have made the breakthrough for Jordan to become a you know a, a regular super team I'm not sure but yeah they they could, they could probably have um, recreated something like they had in 99 with friends and if they'd been given a long enough run at it yeah I have to say when I, when I hear two conflicting stories about interpretation of a contract I do tend to lean towards the fact that EJ might have been chancing his arm on more favourable terms for himself. Yeah, and you can imagine the, the Japanese being very, very correct and being quite bemused by all these different interpretations being put on and, and just throwing up their hands and, and just paying for the problem to go away. You can quite easily imagine that. Yeah, story checks out, story checks out. Uh, let's move on to what we're really here for then, the closing stages of the 2002 Austrian Grand Prix. The Ferraris made their unorthodox second stops with just 10 laps to go. But they were more than 40 seconds clear of the Williamses by that point. So a 1-2 was guaranteed. In the closing stages, we see Jean Tot and Ross Braun on TV passing notes to each other. And Tot, if you watch this footage back, uh, looks like a man incredibly aware of the TV camera that's peering up at them uh, on the pit wall. Matt, we'll, we'll come to the timeline of how this all played out in a moment. But as we reach the closing stages of the race... Do you think there was an air of inevitability that Ferrari would make the swap? Yeah, I think given the culture around Ferrari and particularly Schumacher at that point, and Schumacher right through his kind of championship level career, he'd always been someone who operated in this very strict number one system, which he was enforcing through sheer pace. But also by the time he got to Ferrari, it was it was very much contractual as well. So it seemed it, it definitely felt like a matter of when rather than if. And the only reason it started to feel like an if was because they were taking so long about it. OK, so we all know what happened and how this played out. But let's take ourselves back to that very moment with the live commentary from Ben Edwards and John Watson, who were the team for the F1 Digital Plus service in 2002. Our Ferrari just playing with us, saying, uh, OK, let Michael close up, but we're going to let you in anyway. Or are they saying, no, Rubens, you have to move out of the way. It'll all come down to the last corner. Uh, Barrichello let Michael through there last year. Is he going to be allowed to stay in front on He's this occasion? Down. They're He's coming through down. the last corner. And Barrichello, is he going to win? Or is he going to allow Michael Schumacher to take oh, the that victory? that is a disgrace. That is a disgrace. Oh, I am so Mark, you were in Austria Michael this weekend Schumacher covering the race. Back. When it happened, what was your instant reaction? I was sort of expecting it because if you think back to the year before, they'd swapped position for second on that occasion. And Rubens had very reluctantly agreed, okay, okay, I'll do it. And he said he'd spoken to the team afterwards and said, don't ever ask for that to do that for a win because I won't do it. And they said, no, we wouldn't dream of asking you that. And yet they got into that situation. And of course, that's exactly what they did ask him. And it, you go, all you got to remember about the the Schumacher, um, Braun, uh, Jean Tart, Rory Byrne era is that they were um, an entity. They they were like um, the forces of a compass pointing north, east, south, and west, and they had everything covered in it. They they didn't really allow anyone else in. You had to have a, have a second driver, and the second driver was as far as they were concerned in there gang which was sealed against 
any anything that might detract from the task. Um, that, that was just an add-on, and Eddie Irvin understood that game um, that Rubens never never did, and well, he maybe did afterwards uh, after this, but he he was always assured that he would get equal treatment and it would always just be decided by who was the faster driver um and actually the 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 point there's there's also a point that where you say yeah okay rubens got the lead because he made a better start and 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 and, and therefore it should have been his victory and I, I largely agree with that but at the same time they were never either of them um at any point flat out once once they'd pulled out the gap on third place they were just tooling around and the, the Schumacher was uh, n- not at any point tr- trying to win that by performance because he was uh, assuming it was just going to be led by and Rubens was taking his pace from the fact that Michael wasn't right right with him and so he was just tooling around as well so they're both just tooling around so we didn't actually see a fight and we don't know what the outcome of that fight would have been if they'd both just been left let off the hook. Um, but yeah, it got very, very terse indeed. And um, I think I read somewhere subsequently, years later, that uh, Rubens was talking about uh, it actually in the when he was in the car in discussion with Todd, talking about get his lawyer on the phone and let's discuss what's exactly written in the contract and what was discussed last year after this race. So that that was ongoing while while they were both going round. So yeah, extraordinary situation and because it also it was so early in the season there was absolutely <laughs> there's no you know it wasn't as though it was a tight championship and there's only one race to go and Schumacher desperately needed the points. Where are you with third of the way through the season or something? So it was ridiculous really but yeah, it was that's how that's how that little gang was at that time. It was um it was binary. It was ultimate success, and that was that was all it was about. It does make you wish you had team radio broadcast at that point, doesn't it? Because, like you say, the cars were driving around pretty slowly with no tension whatsoever. But you knew something was must have been kicking off as soon as you saw the notes being passed around on the pit wall, and with the memory of Austria two thousand and one too. Oh God, I hope that lawyer story yes. is true as well. Yeah, definitely. No, I think I, although I said before, I wasn't at all surprised to when I heard it had happened there was still an element of dismay straight away thinking they had a chance to to be fun or sensible or, or think about the good of F1 in this situation and and they they spurned that and went for exactly what you expected of that kind of Ferrari management lineup instead and that was yeah I wasn't surprised but I would, I would have it would have been a great surprise if they hadn't done it there was no surprise in the reaction from the fans in attendance uh, either Schumacher and Barrichello are greeted with monstrous boos from the crowd when they get out of their cars they go up to the podium and a clearly embarrassed Schumacher puts Barrichello on the top step of the podium for the German national anthem, which you can barely hear on TV footage over the booing and the noise from the crowd. Even now, it's incredible. Barrichello tries to swap back for the Italian anthem and uh, he ends up grabbing a reluctant Schumacher basically around the neck, trying to get him up onto the top step. And in the end, they both stand there together, which is just as awkward. Then there's confusion in the prize-giving ceremony because the Austrian Chancellor is up there and doesn't really know who to give the trophy to and Schumacher passes it to Barrichello and actually that would be one of the more significant moments of this in terms of penalties afterwards. The place swapping continues in the press conference afterwards where the drivers are greeted with a chorus of boos from the media. I don't know if you joined in on that as well, Mark, but uh, Barrichello sits in the middle seat for the winner and Schumacher slouches back into the second seat for second place 
And uh, yeah, if you if you find that footage, his body language looks distinctly un Michael Schumacher at that point. I would say, Mark, you were probably in the thick of this. What did you make of the way Schumacher tried to handle it once he realised? You know, there was a backlash going on here. He was shocked. He was shocked when he got out of the car and got that reception. I don't think it ever occurred to him that um, this, this would be unpopular. And I think he was his, his mind was all over the place. It was a little bit like we saw him after his qualifying stunt at Monaco in 2006. And he did, under these sort of extreme, unexpected situations he did lose his composure and i think that's reflected in the type of um incidents that he tended to have in, in, in those conditions of um unexpected emergency let's say uh, he, he did he did lose his composure and it was um yeah it, i think it took him a long time to process what had happened there and i think it did it did actually hurt him and in the following Grand Prix, on Hunt, well, the, certainly the next Grand Prix, he had the opportunity to do it. Um, I believe he deliberately drove very, very softly around the uh, pit lap, the in and in and out laps around the pits, which was just very uncharacteristic him. He was about a second and a half to two seconds off the pace in those crucial laps, which allowed Barrichello to win the Hungarian Grand Prix. And I'm sure that was just Michael in his own mind, repaying that debt and not, not because it was any Ferrari um, policy to do so, just because he felt that um, that's that's what he needed to do. Yeah, there's a bit of a goings-on around uh, that sort of thing at the Nürburgring as well, which we'll come to shortly. But let's hear what everyone had to say afterwards. And between us, we'll, uh, for want of a better phrase, interrogate what they were saying. We'll start with Barrichello. He said, it's something I've been asked to do. I've said nothing. It's a team decision. I just signed a two-year contract with the team and I thought I should respect that. What should I do? I have in my contract that I have to obey orders. As much as Michael, he has the same clause. People ask me, why don't you go back to a team where you are the top, but maybe they won't give me a car to win? Matt, we can't really point the finger at Barrichello here, can we? He he did what he was told. Um, but do you think the fact... It, I think it was announced in the run-up to this race that he'd signed a new contract... Do you think that would have had an influence as well? Did it make him almost more vulnerable or susceptible to, to being bossed around? Well, if Ferrari had said, no, we're dropping you for 2003 before this race, I can't see him having slowed down <laughs> particularly at, at any point. Uh, he, I think you've got to remember as well, he was um, certainly more politically naive than his predecessor in that team, Eddie Irvine. He, Barrichello was only just over two years into his time in any kind of top team at that point as well. So that probably played into it he still you know his he hadn't achieved the success he wanted in his career he was you know hoping ferrari would be his route to that eventually but surely after schumacher retired um but i think that that eddie irvine comparison is a really interesting one because they obviously they were teammates at jordan they had really contrasting characters at that point and a bit of fair bit of needle between them as well and they went into their ferrari stints as schumacher's understudy with such um opposite approaches uh, irvine was very much knowing the game and very happy to play that game and make a lot of money from it and get a bit of success when it was thrown to him. And Barrichello was right from the start of Ferrari trying to play, trying to give the impression that he could take on Schumacher and kind of raising fans' hopes for that as well. And, and occasionally looking capable of doing it, probably more often than Irving did. But no, I think um, how obedient he was on this occasion showed showed the real story there and um, kind of took the wind out of his sails, probably maybe for the rest of his career, potentially. Um 
But yeah, I'm sure having just agreed a new deal played a, played a big part, but I can't imagine he was going to say no to this order at any point. No, that's fair enough. Now, we mentioned the 2001 race earlier where Barrichello was ordered to move over to give Schumacher second place. And that's the race where there's the famous footage of Jean Tot uh, giving the radio call of Rubens, let Michael pass for the championship. And Barrichello did take that one badly in public. Uh, Tot was getting more and more frantic on the radio. There's one point where he starts one of his messages with, this is Jean Todd, as if Rubens maybe wouldn't have known which Jean it was otherwise. Maybe Jean Alacy <laughs> was on the radio. But um, Barrichello uh, deliberately waited until the last corner that time to make a point. And he wasn't quite so measured afterwards. He was stomping around in Park Ferme. Todd calls him over to try to talk to him. And they have a very awkward, uh, brief engagement with each other. And then Rubens wanders off. Uh, later, he says he didn't agree with the decision. He needed to sit down with the team and talk about it. Um, and that's where there was also the talk of him not being allowed uh, or they can't ask him to move over for a win. And at the time, uh, the suggestion was that he could be asked to move aside in the first half of the season as long as it wasn't for a win. But looking at 2001 briefly, Mark, was that one actually more understandable? Because Schumacher was in a championship fight with David Coulthard at that point. Coulthard was winning the race. And if Barrichello didn't get out of the way, DC would have only been two points behind Michael then. Yes, absolutely. And with what I was saying earlier on, it was way, way too early in the season in 2002. And it was miles clear anyway. So there was, was never any danger of him not winning that championship. Um, so 2001, yes, it was a much, it was a much closer contest. Yeah, and as as you mentioned earlier, Todd did promise Rubens after that race, we'll never ask you to give up a win. So that promise lasted about 12 months. Moving on to Schumacher, he said uh, it's very obvious that he takes no joy from the win. He said it was a team decision. He admits that in 2001, I was sort of involved because I felt the championship was much more tight than it was this year. He says he was asked about the prospect of Barrichello moving over before the 2002 race, and he said he didn't think it would happen. He's very grateful to Barrichello, but he says he's not pleased about it and he doesn't think anybody is. He claims that he only found out about it in the last couple of metres of the race, yet Todd later says that the drivers were told with eight laps to go what was going on. So this is what I mentioned earlier about the timelines are a bit all over the place and uh, Ferrari didn't necessarily have their stories straight before they were grilled by the media. Michael says he backed off when Barrichello backed off, which you can see as they approached the line but then Rubens backed off even more. Rubens disputes Schumacher's claim that he was not involved uh, in this discussion. Uh, James Allen did a book about Michael Schumacher called The Edge of Greatness, and in that, Rubens says, I have a transcript of the radio conversation, and although he doesn't talk a lot, he was very aware of what was going on, so it's not true that he had nothing to do with it. Matt, let's look at Schumacher again. What do you make of this explanation? Does the fact that you know, everyone in Ferrari seems to be getting their stories crossed at this point. Does that maybe discredit Michael trying to make himself look like the innocent party here? Uh, Schumacher's record for how he handled any dodgy situation he was involved in was just abysmal, wasn't it? Like, <laughs> in, any interview about the title deciding collisions or the Monaco 2006 qualifying thing, it's just like, oh, for goodness sake, you just feel so disappointed because it's, it's this incredible driver... And yeah, he lets himself down on track sometimes. A lot of the greats do. That's that's fair enough. But uh, you, know, you know, at least when when Senna tried to kind of brave out a crisis by being absolutely flat out belligerent about it, he did it with a bit of conviction. Whereas Schumacher's sort of shuffling a bit in his explanations, but still trying to stay absolutely true to his take on reality in them. Um, 
as you can probably tell by this point, I wasn't a Schumacher fan in my early 20s. I, too, too much of this sort of thing and his handling of it had, had put me off, really. So, you know, I, yeah, I, I, I think... I think the truth was somewhat different to how Schumacher was portraying, uh, not necessarily his involvement in it. It's not like I think he was demanding Barrichello move aside for him, but he was certainly being dis disingenuous to kind of clash with the rest of Ferrari on the timeline of when you knew about it and how involved he was. Schumacher goes on to say he didn't feel like passing Barrichello and he adds, I have to say it was probably the wrong decision to win this race. If I had the chance to turn it around, I probably would, but I cannot now. We'll briefly skip forward to Monaco here because Schumacher's old buddy Jacques Villeneuve sounds off in the pre-event press conference and takes a big swipe at Michael. Villeneuve says, if Michael really felt Rubens deserved the win like he showed on the podium by putting him on the top step and giving him the trophy... All he had to do was slow down and cross the line in second place. Ferrari would not have done anything against him. Even if you're embarrassed because everyone is booing you, uh, step up there. You accepted the win. You didn't slow down. You felt good about it. You raised your hand on the last lap until you heard people booing you. Step up there, take your trophy and be a man. Mark, does Villeneuve have a point here or is he just causing mischief? You know, once Schumacher takes the decision to to accept the victory on the line, does he have to then keep his chin up? or uh, and, and was everything that he basically said afterwards just empty words? Jacques has a point, and he was making mischief. Um, I absolutely agree with Jacques, but um, he delights to this day, well, maybe not now, but in, in, to, to, throughout Michael's active career, Jacques would um, delight in um, any any opportunity he had of, of belittling him. Um, he just didn't, he just, they were very so very different when they and that went all the way back even be, to before estrel 97 so they were they were just um, very different characters that rubbed each other up the wrong way and and jack delighted in um taking any opportunity he could to to belittle them but i think he's absolutely right i think you, 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 michael was ambivalent about how he how are you, are you going to take the victory or are you not going to take the victory if you are going to take the victory why be um you know, is it making as though you were the innocent party afterwards? You absolutely weren't. So you you, you got to you got to be in one camp or the other. And he was he was trying to straddle both, and you you can't. That's a more valid way of expressing it. Let's get back to Austria. Uh, Todd says after the race that he's not surprised by the reaction, but he says I prefer this kind of race to not being first and second. There are, there are even more people to face with no result. Some people are not happy, but we have the result and we feel it's the right thing for the team. He goes on to point out that Ferrari lost the 97, 98 and 99 championships at the last race. And he says, I want to try to avoid that. He also says maybe if that hadn't happened, we would not react like this. He gets asked why Ferrari made it so obvious. And he says, and in fairness, I agree with this one. He says it's better to be able to show what we decided in front of everyone rather than asking Barrichello to simulate being overtaken during the race, which we could have easily organised. Mark, again, you were probably in the thick of this. Were you surprised at how unflustered Todd was after what we'd seen from the drivers? No, no, this was very much standard John Todd. Uh, very, very task-driven, always prepared to justify his actions. Um, we'd seen that from even more outrageous this than this in, in, in rallying when there were... Um, you know, all sorts of shenanigans going on. 
so that he was overseeing and he was always un very unapologetic. So that no, didn't surprise me. He's very composed, um, knows what his um, target is. And when he talks about um, better this than having to go back and face the... He's, he's talking about explaining to Montezamolo why they haven't won a championship yet again. So he's, he's highly driven to um to succeed you know he's, he's they're they're on a they're on a run and he, he wants to just maximize it and squeeze it for everything it's worth so yeah didn't no didn't surprise me at all um i would i felt more comfortable taking a reading from john than from michael um i felt that you would probably get in this sort of situation a, a more accurate reading from john Let's move on to Ross Braun next. Ross gets mobbed in the pit lane when it happens by uh, by the TV crews. And he's clearly not impressed with the line of questioning. He says quite bluntly, Rubens won the race today, but in the interest of Ferrari and the Drivers' Championship, we've made the decision. We were telling Michael not to push. We were telling Rubens not to push. We were watching everything. So you can't call that a race. And that comes back to the point we mentioned earlier. Later on, when he talks properly to the media, he follows Tot's line on Ferrari losing championships in the past he says that he can understand other people making judgments that the championship has already won but ferrari don't make those judgments he particularly points to 1999 when schumacher broke his leg saying anything can happen in a championship and he adds we don't get conceited enough to say that we don't need to follow our policies today we told the drivers we didn't want them racing that's the nature of f1 so matt just like Todd, Braun was in fighting mood here. But when he's saying things like, you can't call that a race, and that's the nature of F1, is it any wonder this was taken so badly by fans at the time? No, not at all. It's showing complete contempt for the fans. And it's, um, I can't remember exactly when Max Mosley came out of this line about seeing F1 as a chess match rather than a sport in reference to strategies and not overtaking. But it, the, around this era, there was quite a feeling, very different to now, really, uh, from in terms of the people in control of F1, whether that was championship bosses or the top teams, just being so blinkered and not seeing that they had some responsibility as well to entertain as well as just being pure sport. Maybe kind of pre-social media with TV deals in place, most of them having big sponsors still. It, it was corporate enough. They didn't have to care about the kind of entertainment and theatre side, but this is one of the ultimate examples of, uh, of how out of touch that attitude was and, and how prevalent it was at the top at the time. And to be fair to Braun, in his book, Total Competition, he describes Austria 2002 as one of the examples of times when I wish I made different decisions. He goes on to say, in our defence, and it's not a strong defence, but in the early period of Ferrari, we were so desperate and paranoid for success that the far-reaching consequences of those sort of decisions were not reflected on that much. But he said he learned during that time that you run the risk of alienating the second driver. And he had to explain to Schumacher, he said... I can suppress the other guy, I can give you every decision you like, but then you'll have a problem because there'll be a guy in the team who is disillusioned. So Mark, this comes back to a point that we did raise earlier. And do you think that perhaps Schumacher and the Ferrari structure that you described earlier, did they ever show many examples of being that concerned about if their number two driver was disillusioned? No, not during this period. Um, I think there were... Um, in Michael's last year, they were uh, very helpful with bringing Felipe Massa on. Um, but it, at that time, Massa was their future. Yeah, so it, no, it was 
it was not a, um, a sympathetic environment for the, the the other driver, and that, that's that's all that Schumacher's partners were up until the recruitment of Massa to replace Rubens. They were just the other driver. Whereas um, I think Massa came along on slightly different terms because he'd, he'd come up through the Ferrari program and was seen as the the guy that you know would would be there for in the in the long term. So I think he was given probably um, a more sympathetic treatment, and he was um, very much a project of the the, the Tots. The Tots had um, helped you know fund his junior career, and so slightly different circumstances. And Michael was already on his way out by then so but in that period um the the sort of 90 97 to 2005 now it was just it was michael's team and the other guy was just there because he needed to be there yeah, you're obliged to run two cars ferrari's rivals don't miss a chance to pile in of course patrick head calls it very cynical bordering on fraudulent uh saying that ferrari doesn't need to do that sort of thing when they're so dominant ron dennis of mclaren says he's surprised so many people are surprised uh, it says Ferrari can, well, they're entitled to do what they want, but they have to stand by the consequences. Gerhard Berger of BMW says it's a terrible decision that does damage to the sport. Uh, Flavio Briatore at Renault says most sport is bigger than Ferrari. Why are we in this business if Ferrari do this to manipulate the result? He calls it disgusting for the public and says Ferrari doesn't care about fans. Flavio goes on to say that what Ferrari did here was worse than when Schumacher ignored a black flag in the British Grand Prix for Benetton in 1994, which earned him a two-race ban, and he says he expects action from the FIA. Tot isn't impressed by any of this, as you might imagine, uh, and he only starts to change his tune when it emerges that Ferrari received a lot of complaints from its own fans. That prompts him to say, I was surprised by the reaction to Austria. Clearly, this was an error of judgment. I cannot say that Austria was the best managed situation ever, but the reaction was totally out of proportion. The opinions of our fans are very important because they are the heart of Ferrari's history. I accept the opinion of the Tifosi, but not people in this paddock because they will never be sincere. So Matt, was this just a bunch of teams who are getting a beating on track, taking a chance to pile in on Ferrari while they're in the dock? And what do you make of Briatore's comparison to Schumacher's black flag and subsequent ban of uh, Silverstone 94? Well, you know, Flavio's tactic for ensuring Schumacher won the race against his teammate was to make sure his teammate was substantially slower so they never had to swap positions on track when there was a Benetton. So he had a different approach to the, to the same problem. Uh, it, all those teams complaining had used team orders, would use them again. You know, that that wasn't really the issue. Um, maybe they might not, maybe they wouldn't have been quite so gratuitous in how they went about it. But, you know, at this point, Ferrari has all the prize money, all the political influence, and now it's smashing everybody else in an unbeatable way on track as well. So at least if people were jealous of Ferrari in the paddock before, at least they were generally beating them in championships for most of the 80s and 90s. Now that's... Uh, now that's not the case. There's not, I'm not surprised other teams were furious and they, they didn't waste a chance to be a bit Villeneuve about the whole thing. Oh, excellent. Good reference. It was quite tough to find anyone talking in support of Ferrari. Uh, the closest we found researching this episode was actually Coulthard. Now, when the 2001 switch happened, DC joked after the race that he hoped team orders weren't about to be banned because nobody had ever been asked to move over for him and he was hoping he'd finally get the benefit of them. Uh, but on, in 2002, he said, Formula One is a team sport and Rubens knows that. It's like the Tour de France. One guy gets all the support of the other riders, but you cannot say that the winner wasn't a great champion just because he got helped. 
That, if you follow cycling, is particularly hilarious in hindsight because this was during Lance Armstrong's era of cheating to win the Tour de France every single year. But DC goes on to say, years ago, drivers would be called in to give their car to drivers like Fangio to let him finish a Grand Prix. And that was back in the days when men were men and it was classic Grand Prix racing. I'm not sure what happened from that point for there to be such a public outrage today. Mark, does DC have a point there? Uh, no, <laughs> <laughs> no, he, he doesn't. It's um, it, team orders are an internal thing, and it, it shouldn't ever be allowed. Not only to, to to pollute what the fans are watching, but to do it in such a gratuitous way as to not even have the courtesy to look like they're even racing. It was they were just messing about half a minute clear of the field, um, and having taking the time out to have an argument while they were doing it. So no, I, I, if if you allow the um, the internals of the sport and break it down so much that it, you allow it to play out on the track in that way, then you've got something badly wrong. And it's it, it is it is a team sport, but it's also um, it, it's projected as a competition between between the drivers, and that's what it gets its popularity from. So you can't just take that popularity and then subvert it. It's, it's just wrong. The fallout doesn't end there. Ferrari does get summoned by the FIA, although the hearing will not be for several weeks. In reaction to that news, Luca di Montezemolo calls a press conference, and he comes out swinging, showing that Ferrari is sticking to its confrontational approach over this issue. Montezemolo says, I was very happy for a Barrichello victory, but a few seconds later I said, OK, guys, you have made the right decision. He says he's sorry to the Tifosi, who are not yet convinced by what we have done, but he believes true Ferrari fans will agree with the decision. He references the three world titles lost at the final race and even points to 2000 when Schumacher lost a 24-point lead over Mika Hakkinen over the summer months. And he says he would not accept losing another championship by the four points that changed hands in Austria. He says that he's not scared of the FIA because he believes they can only investigate the disruption to the podium and he says the rival teams commenting are the last people who are able to judge Ferrari. So, Matt, confrontational stuff there from Montezemolo. But do you think that tone ahead of you know what we now know is going to be a hearing into all this was ultimately a sign of confidence from Ferrari because it knows that it didn't break any rules? I think it's a sign of the general confidence with which Ferrari and De Montezemolo always acted as well. I can't imagine them, um, even if they knew they'd broken any rules um, changing changing tone from that really but yeah you're, you're absolutely right that ferrari did nothing technically wrong in a formula one rules legal sense so even for everyone who was angry back then you all knew that the only way a punishment could really be be in, inserted here was if they kind of retrospectively rewrote the rules to the situation that the fans wanted so yeah no surprise at all that uh, a typically brashly confident man was brashly confident about a situation he was actually legally right about if not morally yeah ferrari taking their own type of high ground now a couple of weeks before the hearing barrichello gives an exclusive interview to nigel roebuck in autosport and it's, it's quite revealing actually i can't imagine we'd get this sort of thing when proceedings were still pending today but ruben says it did come into his mind that ferrari might want to swap the cars but he was never going to be the one to suggest it on the radio uh he said that when he mentioned uh that jean todd had told him you'd never have to give up a win all he got back was, Rubens, we can talk later. Please do it in the best interests of the team. He said he couldn't exactly start an argument at 180 mile an hour, 
but he did ask two or three questions and was given answers whether he liked them or not. No mention of the lawyer, but like I say, I really hope that is true. The final race before the hearing is the European Grand Prix at the Nürburgring, and this time Barrichello is allowed to lead home the 1-2. And apparently Ross Braun came on the radio in the closing stages of that race, and he said, Rubens, can you do me a favour? Pause for dramatic effect. Can you win the race? Which was an amusing piece of self-awareness from Ferrari. Todd Schumacher and Braun all say there was no need to make the switch this time as going into this race, Schumacher was 43 points clear of Ralph in the championship, having won the Canadian Grand Prix, which both Williams is retired from. Braun admits at the time that Ferrari has learned from the experience in Austria and our judgments will be different in the future. And he says that from now on, the team orders might be in Barrichello's favour to help him get second in the championship. Mark, do you think this... What happened over the summer of 2002, as you alluded to earlier, was that a sign that Ferrari had learned from Austria or was this just Ferrari being very careful as they were, I think at this point, days away from the hearing? Uh, yeah, yeah, I think both. I think they'd had time to reflect in the in the days after the, um, the outrage. And I think, yes, they were also um, very aware that uh, they, they didn't want any, um, you know, pen penalty being... Um, dreamt up or anything that might uh, compromise that that championship challenge and the the one two that they were they, they were gunning for. Um, so yeah, it was just they were in their bubble. They were just just in their bubble, and that public reaction brought them out of it. And um, yeah, the, the, it changed the regulations um, for a while. Which that the regul the, the the no team orders regulation that came in as a result of this wasn't a happy regulation either because how do you define exactly what a team order is so there were team instructions and drivers driving very carefully around in and out laps when it was very obvious what they were doing so that yeah it 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 made it made a regulation um that really that there shouldn't have been a regulation for um but it, it forced the fia into doing it in reaction to what had been you know just a a travesty, really. Yeah, I think we'll call it the Fernando is faster than you regulation. The hearing takes place and Ferrari is fined half a million dollars for the podium infringements with the same amount imposed again as a suspended fine for one year. As Montezemolo predicted, the FIA couldn't challenge Ferrari's team orders in a legal sense because they were allowed in the rules. Max Mosley said at the time, we've got a problem. None of us like team orders in certain circumstances, as we saw in Austria, but we cannot find a solution to prevent it. But although the World Council wanted to take action, it was not legally possible. Max said he was doubtful beforehand it would be possible to nail Ferrari, even though he wanted to impose sanctions. And he said, the longer I listened to arguments from both sides, the more doubtful I became. Ultimately, Matt, was it naive of anyone to think that you could penalise Ferrari for breaking a rule that didn't exist? Oh, completely. Yeah, the, the, only, the only reason anyone thought there might be serious sanctions here was just desperation to kind of take some revenge on Ferrari for making F1 a bit boring. Not just for that year, but I think as well, early in 2002, you'd had 
you could see where this was going. 2001 had been really dominant as well. McLaren was in decline. Williams, you weren't really sure we're going to get there with BMW. Ferrari had this strict number one policy. It just looked like every year for the foreseeable future was going to look just like this. And it was, you know, if fans were losing hope, the other teams were surely losing hope as well. And so it was almost like a kind of, this was the chance to go, Ferrari, just stop it in, in some way. And what it really needed was a change of tyre rules for 2000 and, uh, 2005, it turned out. But um, but yeah, that this was never going to result in a in a serious penalty. And it was actually a bit of a shame it resulted in a slightly messy rule change. Yeah, I, I, as we've discussed, it really didn't work. And Mosley kind of predicted that at the time. So he was asked why team orders aren't banned. And he said it would just be done in a clandestine way instead, uh, such as messing up pit stops for one car. The killer line really was, you don't solve any problem by forcing it underground. The FIA even asks the public for suggestions on how to solve it, which I don't really think came to anything. Um, but let's give the last word on this subject to a man who knows a thing or two about Ferrari team orders. And we've mentioned him a few times so far, and that's Eddie Irvine. Irvine really set the template for the dutiful Schumacher number two in the 90s. And in James Allen's Michael Schumacher book, Irvine offers a really interesting theory on why people had finally had enough of watching Schumacher's teammates be moved aside. This is what Eddie said. When you are at the very top, it does matter if you are unsporting. When you are coming up, when you are poor, you've got to get rich however you can. And then when you are rich, you've got to get clean. That's the way of the world. And it's the same with Ferrari. We did everything, not particularly nice things, to get up there and beat Hakkinen. We had to. We had a car that was a second and a half slower. That's a bit dramatic, I think. How are we going to win a world championship? And you know what? Everyone kind of let us get away with it because we were doing everything we could to compete. And that's fair enough. But when you have a much faster car, now you are taking the piss. And that is where they overstepped the line. So, Mark, Irvine said he was still a Ferrari fan at this time and he found the Austria backlash hard to watch because of that. Is his summary actually quite good in this instance that Ferrari's circumstances had changed from the days when they were getting him to move aside because Michael was effectively an underdog at that point? Yes, I think Eddie's largely right. Um, there, there was a lot of um, there was a lot of goodwill behind Ferrari um, because they, they'd been coming, th- they'd been through so long in the doldrums that there was an excitement, ev- even if it was um, non non Italian. Um, bunch that were in charge. It was uh, slightly different, but there was still it was it was the the coming back of Ferrari, and I think there was some goodwill there. But once they had achieved that in two thousand, really, you, you they they wouldn't be allowed any any leeway. They couldn't act in a a cynical way, and they they were just cynical that day in Austria. I think as well, there'd been this air of this gang will do anything to win, kind of following the uh, the Schumacher brawn. Um, package around from the Benetton days really as well and as much as it was romantic to see Ferrari win again in 2000 it wasn't it wasn't the kind of romantic slightly shambolic run by a friendly Italian guy Ferrari of uh, the, the, kind of, the team's kind of more endearing and, and less successful days this was a this was a championship winning machine that was willing to bend things to make sure it won those championships and as much as you you had to admire Schumacher's greatest drives that at this point there wasn't a lot of I don't feel like there's a great deal of fondness for for that for this era and for Ferrari at, that, at this point, it's looked back on very very romantically. But uh, having lived through it as both a fan and a journalist, it was pretty clinical. And I'm not surprised uh, even one of its ex drivers thought Ferrari was taking the piss here. 
We'll leave Austria 2002 there. I think we've summed it up quite well. Not one of F1's better days and not one of Ferrari's better days. But we hope you all enjoyed us revisiting it and interrogating the arguments that were put forward at the time and maybe picking some holes in a few of them. So make sure you let us know what you made of this saga using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter. Keep sending us your questions about F1 from 1989 to 2005 for our series finale. And if you feel so inclined, leave us a review on whichever podcast platform you use. Next week, you're in for a treat because we've got an absolute bumper episode. In name only, it's about the 1993 Portuguese Grand Prix, but in reality, that's just the central point we're using to look back on an absolutely crazy couple of weeks in the F1 news cycle. There are so many stories going on around F1 at this time that I'll be honest, right now, we're not going to spend that much time talking about the race. I'm certain it's going to be our longest ever episode. So make sure when that appears in your feed, you set aside a little more time than usual to have a listen. I promise you won't be disappointed. <laughs>